0: Alex Hannaford, and this is Battleground. And I'm producer Pete. Alex, tell us which battleground we're looking at today. So the theme of today's podcast is immigration.
1: Immigration. 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 But illegal immigration.
0: Migrants seeking asylum. Which is obviously a pretty hot topic.
1: This is a country where we speak English. Not
0: Crisis of illegal immigrants, particularly children. The drugs, the heroin, it's pouring in, and it's so surging cheap. into the United States. I mean, arguably, the, <laughs> the election is really being fought on whether you like Trump or not, but immigration certainly was a massive. Issue in 2016. Trump made it a sort of central plank of his campaign. You'll remember he talked about this big, beautiful wall he was going to build on the southern border. We're going to build the wall. We have no choice. We have no choice. Uh, He talked about immigrants being criminals coming over the Mexican border. And I wanted to find out more. I wanted to know what a second Trump term meant for immigrants and immigration, what a Biden presidency means. And how are you doing
1: that today? Who are you speaking to?
0: So we're talking to Jose Henis who is one of the leaders of a group called Aguilas del Desierto, or Eagles of the Desert. I've known Jose for a while. When I first met him, it was a number of years ago, and he invited me to tag along with his organization in the southwestern desert in Arizona. And we basically spent two days looking for the remains of migrants who had lost their lives in the desert. And it was, as you can imagine, a fairly harrowing experience. You'll hear what happened uh, in this podcast in search for missing migrants in the toughest desert terrain.
1: The 3,000-kilometer strip is becoming increasingly porous. The human drama and sheer danger of the journey so many people are attempting to They're make. They're up against powerful gangs and traffickers.
0: Jose's fascinating because he was an undocumented immigrant himself. He came over the southern border with his family when he was very young. They found it a struggle settling in the U.S. Jose ended up joining the U.S. Navy. And he talks about immigration generally and how sort of Trump's rhetoric over the last four years has kind of impacted him and the, the way he's treated and people he knows, you know, his family and people he knows. And, of course, the wall. We should
1: say that in this series, we really wanted to speak to people who not only can are experts on a particular issue, an issue that we're, we're covering, an issue that will form part of the election debate. But we also wanted people whose lives have really Been affected by it. Yeah,
0: look, I mean, quite frankly, you're going to have people listening to this podcast who are Trump supporters who think that, you know, immigration should be curtailed and that these people are bad guys coming over the border. I think that what I wanted to do, having known Jose and his story and what he does now, I think it has the power to change people's perceptions. And I think if I could sum up why we're tackling these certain issues that we've chosen to tackle in this podcast series it's that america is so polarized it's so divided right now and people think of these issues as very black and white uh, it's one side versus the other and the truth truth is there's a nuance to all of these and i think that if if an interview with jose can make a trump supporter think a little bit more about uh, immigration and the impact it has on certain people and just hear from somebody like Jose and his journey and his story, it may just change the way they they think about it a little bit. And the same for the left. I mean, I, I think people can wade into this debate without really knowing all the, uh, the the nuances and and the sort of stories behind. You know, Jose is one person who's got a fascinating story and I think sometimes it's really important to hear the human side of it. And that's what I think Jose does.
1: All right, let's hear it. Then.
0: So I'm just going to do my levels. Hold on. Da, 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 da. Jose, Jose. Yeah, that's okay.
2: That's good. So quick, I think I right. just had gardeners come up on my neighbor's house. Can you, is that coming out on the feedback or? What they do in the lawn? Can you guys hear it? Just, just go and hide the
0: keys. Actually, we can't hear them, so we can we can start. Jose, hi, it's been a long, long time. Good to see you.
2: Hey, Alex, good to see you too.
0: Long time, man. Thanks for agreeing to do this. Yeah, definitely, no problem. We've known each other a few years now, um, and <laughs> the first time I met you was under some pretty weird circumstances. It was, um, I have to say, a bit of an eye-opener for me. Obviously, I knew what I was kind of getting into, but uh, I don't think anything really prepared me for what I saw. We met down on the southwest border in Arizona, very close to the border of Mexico. We, very early in the morning, sort of got our gear on. It was going to be about 100 and something degrees that day. We put snake gaiters around our uh, ankles and scarf around our neck to stop the sun beating down all the rest of it. And we had walking sticks and we went looking for human remains. And just in that weekend, you know, I saw stuff that I'll never unsee. I mean, we found, I think it was something like three sets of skeletal remains. And then we found probably about a week old corpse of a man under a tree in the desert.
2: That base in particular has a lot of crossings. And we had a couple of uh, reports in that area. And it, it was actually, I believe, it was the first time we had gained access into that base. So that's what we were going there for. We found, actually, I believe it was like 11 or 12 remains that first weekend.
0: Yeah, it was a kind of um, military base, like an Air Force base. I guess the American military sort of do bombing practice there. And this was a weekend when there was no activity there. And they'd given you special dispensation to kind of go and search in the desert. And you had some idea where the migrant trails were. What struck me was how... Quickly, we came across the remains of migrants in the desert. It seemed to me like we had only scratched the surface and that if we'd have spent another weekend doing it or another or a week doing it, we would have found many, many more. That was the first time I had been out there and done that and followed your team or whatever. But what is it that compels you to go back time and time again? I'm a migrant,
2: you know, and I came to the U.S. Uh, illegally and I feel their pain, obviously. You know, they, everybody just wants a shot. And because of that, I I started making, you know, making it an effort to try to help those who are in need. I feel these people are, you know, genuine people that, you know, other circumstances, they could have a better life, right? And that's what they're looking for. And uh, they're someone's, you know, daughter, son, father. They're looking for something better. So, I mean, uh, it it really kills me inside to know that these people are dying out there and and really not much was being done to uh, help them out. Illegal immigrants who succumbed to 100 degree heat in the mesquite covered ranchland
1: a sixth migrant child has died after crossing the US Mexico border
0: the conditions are brutal for the searches as well how long are you usually out there for and talk a bit about the, the conditions that you're
2: searching in in the summer months we can face you know 120 degree heat on top of that you know it's we're carrying you know 40 80 pound packs you know with water food and just supplies that we need you know in case we do encounter a migrant who's alive so, it's very rigorous. A lot of times, you know, people think of the desert as like this hard, solid, cracked floor, right? It's just because it's so dry, but it's not like that in a lot of places. It's it's Some places are very rocky. Some places have a lot, a lot of sand, so, you know, you're sinking into it. A lot of places have a lot of, like, washes that you have to hike down into and then hike out of. So, you know, it's not really easy to cover a lot of terrain, and then your group splitting up, and... You know, you can't see each other through the brush because sometimes it's so heavy and sometimes it's just, you know, basically just dirt. You know, that's all you see. We've had some team members actually succumb to the desert heat. Some of our team members had, you know, heat stroke.
0: When I was with you, when I was with you, one of the volunteers basically collapsed from heat stroke. And it was while some of your team members were stretching him out to the van that the radio crackled to life. and, And another team member called out another death, another death, and they'd found that, the the, the weak old body. Right, yeah, I remember that. Right, but there are other dangers. I mean, we talked about wearing snake gaiters as snakes. I've seen uh, a tarantula when I've been hiking in the southwestern desert. And then, of course, you have hazards like the cactuses. There's one cactus that kind of sort of shoots out its thorns, which I know some of the migrants crossing have a lot of trouble with as well.
2: Yeah, so, I mean, obviously there's a lot of, you know different animals out there obviously like snakes that can hurt you and coyotes and obviously the cactus is i I think that's probably the one thing that worries me the most it's called the cholla cactus and they have these little pricks that will stick to you at the moment you touch them right they hurt like hell so we've had team members that you know bump into them and we'll have to stop the whole crew so nobody continues ahead and we have to pull them all out and so yeah that's probably the worst thing that we want to do and and if you imagine you know these Ladies and gentlemen, that are crossing the desert. Most of the time, their their uh, trek is during the night, so you know, border patrol won't see them, or because they're trying to hide. And you know, they they step on these, you know, and they're most of the time they're just wearing sneakers. And here we are wearing boots, and we're you know crying. Um, most of these migrants don't come prepared. You know, they're they're being told kind of lies. Sometimes you know it's going to give you a day or two, and they come with you know ten shoes that you know definitely will not last. You know, a ten day hike through the Arizona desert.
0: And the, the people that are telling them these lies, presumably, are the, the people traffickers, the smugglers um, and the the cartels. And I wondered whether you ever, you know, obviously you find these skeletal remains and stuff. Do you ever come across any of the cartels on the trails? And if so, like, how do you navigate that?
2: How those families get to the border and manage to cross
1: is a money-making enterprise for smugglers and for Mexico's powerful cartels. Since 1990, border patrol agents have discovered at least 230 cross-border tunnels running from Mexico into California and Arizona. It has its own rail network. For another, when the San Diego Joint Tunnel Task Force located it, they also nabbed eight people and more than 20 tons. That's 20 tons of pot
2: so we have we've stumbled upon um some uh you know drugs mainly just marijuana like in packages right before it became legalized in the u.s and they they usually have like lookouts uh on the hillsides that are kind of guarding their little stashes that they have in the desert so we were told as a group you know if you find something just kind of let it go and and we'll try to gps track it um and we used to try to provide the information to border patrol after that you know it we decided, as an organization, not to even provide the information to Border Patrol because these these lookouts are, are watching us as we you know stumble upon our stash. And then if you know four hours later, Border Patrol comes and picks it up, then they would know who is providing that information, right? So we decided, you know, just kind of if we stumble upon it, just keep walking, don't do anything, and just leave it there. Um, there was an instance when we had found a body, kind of like in the area where you you and I uh, went and met. And we kind of just, you know, took the pictures and started heading out. And we went towards the water tank, which was close by to just get some water real quick. And once we got to the water tank, you know, I I was kind of looking down again, trying to make sure I didn't step on those, you know, choya cactus. And I looked up and there was about 10 guys, um, 10 guys standing there with like camouflage clothing. And two of them were holding kind of like what looked like AK-47s. I was just stunned, you know, I didn't know what to do. And I... I was kind of afraid, obviously, because they're having they have guns, they had packs. Some I can only surmise that they were carrying some type of, you know, illegal drugs or something. And um I mean I had my shirt on that said, you know, search and rescue. And I said, Hey, you know, my name is Jose. We're part of a search and rescue team. We found a body and just want to make sure that everything's okay. Do you guys need any assistance or anything? And it felt like, you know, forty seconds before they replied, which I'm assuming was probably just two seconds, right? And the guy said, no, we're fine. I'm like, okay, well, you guys take care. And, um, and they're like, okay. So I, I kind of turned around and started walking away from them. As I came to a bend where they could no longer see me, I just sprinted. And I just, you know, I ran uphill for a mile. And Luckily, nothing happened at that point. We have had other groups that have been shot at. And we have other groups that had been beaten up in the desert, you know, being questioned as to who they are. Uh, by the cartels so I mean it it is definitely dangerous but it's you know still not deterring us from being able to do this
0: Jose let's go back to the beginning for you where were you born
2: and and tell me about your uh, journey across as well I was born in Ananiquilco Morelos really small town south of Mexico City the way I got here basically I was I remember I was being I was two years old when my parents tried to cross me and I was with my mother we were trying to cross through the desert and I don't know if it was in Arizona I just fake memories and I remember just being brushed and dirt and and it was late at night and um, it's hard to say that I remember this at 2 but this is all I remember, just little flashing lights and what seemed to be police vehicles but I'm assuming it was Border Patrol and um, people running and then my mom and I just ended up being in the cell, right? So we were in a cell overnight and I remember my mom just kind of holding me and um, from that point on I'm not sure exactly what thing what happened if According to my mom, we were sent back. Eventually, you know, we went back to our hometown. My mom ended up crossing later, and um, I stayed in Mexico and then came back across when I was 15.
0: the 1990s, were a time of building anger over immigration. Illegal immigration is a serious problem in California. Deport every illegal alien in the United States immediately. Came back across um, illegally? Or? It was, uh,
2: it, yeah, it was illegally. Um, so I, I learned how to speak English. It was easy back then. I guess I was 15, so they had coached me what to say when I crossed, you know, through the the border crossing. So this time I was through the border crossing, and uh, I used somebody else's um, a birth certificate. And if you're under 18, oh, that's all you need. So the the border patrol agent just said, or CBP agent just said, you know, where were you born? And I had memorized the birth certificate, and I, I can't remember what hospital in LA I used. And I said that, and he just kind of waved me by and gave me back the birth certificate, and I just went through. So. I was amazed, you know, that it was that easy, but, um, I just, you know, wanted to be with the family.
0: Yeah. Tell me why the family had decided to leave in the first place for presumably for a better life, but what was life like in the town that uh, your parents had, had, had lived in?
2: Obviously, yeah, it's a better life, right? Um, it's a small town where we live and it's just a farming community. And, uh, if you don't have land, basically you're just a farmer, right? You're just working the land for the people who have land. And the my my father just wanted to, you know, have something better for us instead of always, you know, working like that. He left us behind for the first, for a few years, you know, while he was able to get some money and take us over. But um, the town doesn't really provide much. I mean, there's a lot of property out there and it's it's really small and a lot of corruption. Obviously, it's, you know, you hear kidnappings all the time and especially if you have some money. Definitely something my dad didn't want to, you know, keep his under for. But
0: Yeah, how, I was going to ask how your family, um, how they found it settling in america was it easy for them
2: no um obviously it's it's hard you know again same thing you know the the type of jobs you can get you know my dad was like a day laborer he picked up like masonry skills and he started working like that and i mean it was a family of eight basically my my mom and dad and six siblings and we would live in apartments or you know one bedroom homes you know so it's always hard to kind of get that and that's all i remember you know like being older and just living in that that kind of setting and I I kind of wanted to show you know that I could do a little bit more and just get out of that situation so as soon as I got here you know two years later I ended up joining the military and you know kind of basically jumping ship.
0: Tell me about that so you how did you get to the stage where you were able to join the U.S. military and how did you make that decision as well to sort of decide to do that?
2: We all got our green cards basically when I came here and I got my residency uh, in Mexico I had already already graduated high school coming to the u.s they wouldn't give me a high school diploma because of the fact that i had never attended a school there so they ended up telling me to attend a school and i went there for a year and i graduated from school so also turns out that i that i was gay male and i was you know having issues with my family so i kind of that pushed me in that direction you know that i better just get away from them
0: God, you had so much to navigate here not only coming to a new country but then uh, the sort of the the personal stuff as well
2: Right. I mean, I love my family, but I needed, you know, to do something as well. And my family did have some issues with the fact that I was gay. And, um, you know, we we later kind of made up. But, you know, at that point, it was an easy option just to join the military. And so the day I turned 17, now I was flying out to go to uh, boot camp. I was in the military about for my four years. So I promoted quickly in in that area and um, it really helped me mature. But I knew that it wasn't for me. You know, I couldn't be taking orders and getting yelled at by, you know, by kids all the time.
0: A quick word from one of our sponsors. This holiday season, more people will be mailing stuff than ever before, which means the post office is going to be busy. You don't have time for that. So stamps.com brings the post office and now UPS shipping right to your computer. With Stamps.com, anything you can do at the post office, you can do with just a few clicks. Plus, Stamps.com saves you money with deep discounts that you can't even get at the post office. Stamps.com is a must-have for any business. Whether you're a small office sending out invoices, an online seller fulfilling orders during this record-setting holiday season, or even a giant warehouse sending thousands of packages a day, Stamps.com can handle it all with ease. Simply use your computer to print official U.S. postage. 24-7 for any letter, any package, any class of mail, anywhere you want to send it. Once your mail's ready, just schedule a pickup or drop off. Uh, It's that simple. With stamps.com, you get 5 cents off every first-class stamp and up to 40% off priority mail and up to 62% off UPS shipping rates. Not to mention, it's a fraction of the cost of those expensive postage meters. Stamps.com is a no-brainer, saving you time and money, and it's no wonder that over 900,000 small businesses already use Stamps.com. So don't spend a minute of your holiday season at the post office this year. Sign up to Stamps.com instead. There's no risk. And with my promo code, MASSES, as in huddled masses, you get a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage and a digital scale. There's no long-term commitments or contracts. Just go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in MASSES. That's Stamps.com, enter MASSES. Stamps.com, never go to the post office again. Immigration is obviously a massive sort of political hot potato, which is why it's part of this podcast. Let's talk about 2012. Obama issued this executive order, I believe, which established DACA the Deferred Action on Childhood Arrivals. His actions shield an estimated five million undocumented immigrants from deportation. They apply to adults and children who have lived in America at least five years and have no criminal record. Can you describe what that is and whether you think that was a a good move, a bad move, not enough, enough?
2: DACA is basically, obviously, you know, kids who were brought here at a young age or uh, um, by parents who are, you know, basically here illegally they would be able to stay here without having to be deported. Right. And I think it obviously was a good move um, because of the fact that, you know, kids who, who are brought here at a young age, you know, it's obviously not their fault. Right. Um, And that's all they know. The U S is all they know when they've, you know, they've become members of you know the society and to involve politics and to try to send kids back for that reason. You know, it's, it's inhumane. And somebody say that, you know, well, yeah, they're they're illegal though. It's just heartless. Right. Um, I can't imagine, you know, just being ripped out of uh, your environment and being sent to some place that you really basically have never known and told, you know, make a living out there. And
0: what's been Trump's stance on
2: DACA? Oh, gosh. (laughs) (laughs) Trump's stance, you know, well, they tried to repeal it, right? Um,
1: President Trump plans to let the program known as DACA end. The Obama administration started DACA five years ago.
2: And under pressure, they had to take it back. But, I mean, it's just insane. You know, every time I hear something coming down the pipeline from them um i just kind of shake my head there's there's nothing you know there's never been um a presidency that that's been more ignorant other than trump's right but it, even then i mean it's surprising to see that um a lot of people were in support of it you know and i just can't fathom what their you know what their their thought process is you know like what what makes them think that that's you know a good idea
0: part of his whole Sort of the, the rhetoric in the, when he was electioneering in 2016 was that undocumented migrants are coming over the border in droves. Not only are they taking your jobs, but they're also criminals. And that played into this fear, which is of a sort of electorate ripe for somebody like Trump, this populist. We're going to build a wall. It's going to be built. The drugs, the heroin, it's pouring in. And it's so cheap because there's so much of it.
1: And the kids are getting stuck and other people are getting stuck. We're going to end it. We're going to end it. We're going to end it at the southern border. It's going to be over.
0: I wonder, you know, what goes through your head when you see on TV crowds of people uh, repeating the phrase build Build that that wall. wall.
2: Build that wall. Build that wall. Build that
0: wall. What does that say that they think about you and your family who obviously you served this country. You have a good job you contribute to the economy. What does that tell you?
2: It's, it's um, gosh, I mean, it definitely lets you know, you know, and lets everybody else know that there's ignorance within the community. And, and on top of that, you know, it's blatant racism, right? When they're saying something like that. And, and I have had people, you know, tell me, go back to my country or ask for my papers. And, and you know, like, well, I'm a, I'm a citizen of the US and I've served the country, you know? So I've done more than some other people have had done.
0: Does it change when, when somebody says that to you and you say, I was in the Navy, I, I, I served this country? Um, does that shut them up? Or-
2: well, it kind of varies. Um, some people, you know, like, well, uh, some people will say, oh, I didn't know that. You know, sorry, they'll apologize. And some people just continue being ignorant about it. You know, like, well, you know, I don't know how you got in this country, but we don't want you guys here. and It's shocking, you know, to, to know that that still happens in the U.S. And, and we're so far ahead of the game here, supposedly. But then you look at our, you know, inside system of how things are going and and we're we're going backwards right now well
0: there's also i think there's quite a lot of evidence that 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 suggests that undocumented migrants that are living here bring you know economic and and uh, cultural benefits to the country there's also good evidence to show that undocumented migrants commit less crimes than per capita than the general population because you know they don't want to get picked up by police it's the last thing they want to do you know i've met undocumented migrants in america who just want to just get on with life and fly under the radar they're scared of going you know going out in their car they're fearful of ice and so you know they just want to work their jobs and send their kids to schools and sort of get on with things and that's the that's the 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 vast majority of them of course you're going to get bad eggs in every you know demographic every group of people
2: yeah, and it's, it's not just even crime, you know, like uh, the rhetoric of the fact that we're taking, you know, I say we, since I'm an immigrant, but the fact that they, there's rhetoric saying, you know, that we take all the benefits, you know, we're on welfare and stuff like that. And, and I mean, there's also been studies about that, you know, where it's, it, we're actually, you know, immigrants are actually a net surplus, right? They provide into the economy, they pay taxes, and yet they can't get those benefits back, you know, you have to have residency to be able to get welfare and, and all the medi so I mean, it, it's just a blatant lie. Just people don't, you know, they just don't want to see that part.
0: Uh, let's talk about the border fence. So you know, this is obviously was a massively important thing for for Trump in terms of his sort of platform when he won the presidency three and a half years ago. My understanding of the border wall is that you know, the more we build, the more we extend it, it's forcing people who are going to cross regardless into more and more sort of hostile terrain. Now, those on the right would say, great, that will deter them. But from your perspective, you're seeing these people crossing in ever more hostile terrain and not making it. So that's why we have, you know, an incredible amount of migrant deaths every year from people trying to cross in these sort of inhospitable kind of places. I mean, obviously, you've talked about the town that your parents grew up in, but let's talk about sort of more generally people coming from the the Northern Triangle of uh, Honduras, Guatemala and El Salvador, particularly, I want to kind of get a sense of what these undocumented migrants are fleeing from, what makes it them so desperate to cross in such uh, difficult places and risk their life doing it. I
2: did a kind of like a mini caravan where when we started our organization, we went from Arizona and we drove down south into Mexico going to different shelters for the migrants where they would stop and rest and then continue on their trek so as we stopped through these shelters we were providing you know information about the border basically giving them you know telling them what to expect if they were going to cross it's, and we kind of said the same thing it's almost like sex sex ed we told them you know we encourage you not to do it but if you're going to do it here's a little bit of information to be prepared for you know because it's not an easy trek like they're telling you it's going to be. We heard stories from there where, you know, this one gentleman, he actually took his shirt off, and he had scars all along his back. And we asked him what happened, and he said, you know, he was living, I believe, in El Salvador, and I think he was a victim of gang violence. And they they robbed him, and uh, he went to the police. And from the police, I think two days later, they attacked him and his family, and they killed his brother. They kept attacking him, and they actually chased him with a machete, which is basically a big, long blade, kind of like a knife. He survived that attack and, you know, decided he didn't want to live there anymore. But, I mean, again, due to the resources, he couldn't just pick up and move, right? He decided to kind of come up to the U.S. And, um, you know, they're basically met with the same fate up here, you know, going through that trek of coming from down in Central America and um, taking a train up to the border areas. They encountered their own risk there because, you know, they're also, you know, like gangs trying to take advantage of them and, and... Either steal their money or just you know use them for other stuff. So yeah, other families just extreme poverty. We had a mom that her husband died, I think, due to like diabetic uh, complications, and she was basically alone with two kids, and one was almost uh, like a five month old baby, and she wanted to make the trek up here. And I remember her calling us and asking us for guidance. I'm like, we can't really give you guidance, you know, like it's it's not what we do, but I mean. If you're gonna do it, you know, be prepared and and you know, stay in safe places. We gave her a list of all the shelters to go through, and apparently she went. I mean, she stopped communication and she said she's gonna leave in a certain day. And you know, you think about those people and, and what they're yeah. gonna go through, it breaks your soul, you know, because you you, you want to help them, but there's nothing else you can do for them.
0: Jose, um, conservatives say liberals want open borders. You know, you hear, hear it all the time. They just want open borders. They don't care who comes in.
1: They want open borders. They want people pouring in.
0: Let's sort of give you the opportunity now to, to sort of set the record straight. What do you think U.S. immigration on the Mexican border should look like? Should there be some kind of war? Should there be any border at all? Let's say that you are face to face with a Trump supporter who says you just want open borders and you want people to be able to come and go as you please do you
2: well obviously it's it's a no right um and the utopian society i think that open borders will work perfectly right um but i know that a mass influx like that you know would not be good for either economy the thing that we want you know basically is to to just have you know if there was better you know immigration reform right easier uh for them to either come in be able to work up here or just communication between the countries to kind of help each other out right um a lot of people always say you know there's there's issues in mexico and south america to do drugs but those drugs are being pumped in the u.s so it's the same thing right um there's blame in the u.s side for having the need for those drugs and obviously there's blame in the in, the, in mexico and central america for providing those drugs so
0: i met a, a, a trump supporter i was doing a story on the border a while back i met a trump supporter who uh, it was a rancher on the border, and he um, actually had a section of border wall that, that, that divided his ranch from uh, Mexico that was actually built under the Obama administration. And so, you know, I, I saw this huge, huge wall on his property, and I said to him, what do you think of this? And he said, well, you know, it's um, I used to see uh, deer, you know, thousands and thousands of deer migrating uh, across the border, but I don't see that anymore because of the wall. And he said, my dad owned the ranch before me, and, you know, years ago we used to have um, undocumented people come across and dad would sort of feed them and give them water and then probably employ them to kind of work on the the ranch and stuff. And he said during the Reagan administration, there was a program where uh, I think a million migrants were given, uh, you know, season uh, permits to come and work in places like his dad's ranch and stuff. And he thinks that was a great idea. And I said, well, you don't sound like the typical sort of Trump supporter who I'm hearing want a physical wall. You said you went to the inauguration. You're a, you're a big Trump supporter. He said, No, no, no. I think it should be a a virtual wall. I think you know more cameras and drones and stuff. And, and you know, we, but I like the the, the program that, that Reagan put into place with a sort of permit system. And it was kind of shocking to me the nuance that this guy was talking about. And I just wonder whether. Is, is Trump just all rhetoric? I mean, does he? do you think he really
2: means what he says? And- yeah, no, I mean, I, I think I, I know. I mean, the the wall, you know, a lot of people think that a wall is going to stop people from coming in, and, and the answer obviously is no, right? No wall, no physical barrier will stop them to come in. I mean, you have San Isidro area where it's, it's, it's a massive wall and it's highly trafficked by CBP cameras, drones, and, you know, on the news you hear every other month they find a tunnel, right? So a wall is not going to stop them.
1: There will not be another of wall, construct it on my administration. I'm going to make sure that we have border protection, but it's going to be based on making sure that we use high-tech capacity to deal with it.
0: Um, If Biden gets in, what will happen to Trump's wall or or the wall generally and and the border region generally as
2: well? You know, I think the, the wall, I mean, Trump's wall that, you know, he claims to have built, I mean, there's only, what, a few miles of it built so far. I'm assuming that all that will stop. Construction will stop if Biden does win. In a general sense of you know, if anything will happen with the borders, I think nothing big will happen. You know, it's kind of the same. He'll probably have the same policies as Obama had prior. You know, because they were so popular. But I'm hoping there's also not a mass deportation as well because Obama did have you know mass deportations. You know, as a country, you kind of need that in in a sense. You know, to kind of keep balance and it's part of your laws. But you know, in all honesty, I just don't think a lot will a lot will change with uh, Biden, other other than stopping the construction. Do
0: you think that the rhetoric will be different? Presumably.
2: Oh yeah, <laughs> it already is. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you clearly see, you know, there's there's people that can actually uh, hold a conversation and and you know make sense of something. Um, Trump is just someone who, uh, to me, just he's like a little kid, you know, if it's not his way, he doesn't want it.
0: Are you hopeful for the future?
2: Sort of like maybe
0: 10 years from now? Do you think there's going to be significant change in terms of sort of immigration policy?
2: Um, you know what? <laughs> I think I'm jaded now. I mean, seeing what I've seen, I think, you know, I, I, I'm not really hopeful. I think that even when we have progressive people in the White House, I mean, they kind of just stall. Even if we had control of like the Senate and Congress, I think they they would just, you know, do very little to kind of help out. I mean, you always want to say that you're doing something to help and it's the minimum amount you can do to kind of look better in front of someone's eyes, right? But to make the change that big, I think it's it's going to take a long time and it's probably, I don't know, I'd say 30, 40 years from now.
0: Jose, you're a star. I really appreciate you talking to me for so long and, and sharing your story and um, it's great to see you again. And hopefully after this pandemic's over, we can have it share a beer again like we did in dallas a, a few months back definitely thanks for having me all right man thank you so much take care you went for a beer with jose in dallas i did thanks for the invite well you weren't allowed to fly out because of the pandemic there's a pandemic <laughs> actually no that's not true there was no pandemic when I you met. lied i lied
1: you said you were locked down
0: it's a pre-pandemic beer yeah
1: Um, Is there any, obviously, you know, Jose quite well. Was there anything about that that sort of told you more about divisions in society?
0: Uh, Well, I've known Jose a while and I obviously know his story inside out. But what was, you know, still listening to him kind of relaying it again is completely horrifying to me when I sort of try to put myself into his brain, sort of see it through his eyes and imagine what he felt like back in 2016 when Trump made the border a key plank of his election bid. And Jose is there watching television and watching Americans all over the country get behind that and chant, build that wall, considering what him and his family had been through and what he now witnesses every weekend when he goes into the Southwestern desert and searches for the remains of migrants. And, you know, I thought that when he was talking about that, it was just really visceral for me, like just thinking about how when he hears everyday Americans talking about this stuff and kind of siding with Trump on this, how he must feel. Particularly, look, let's face it, that he's served the country as well.
1: And at the time of recording, immigration is slightly off the table in terms of what we're hearing from the two candidates but how do you think immigration will still feed into the election
0: the border is sort of scarcely talked about i mean maybe trump sort of brings it up his his rallies just to get people to kind of chant that again but it's really um it sounds it's sort of seeming like less of an electoral issue but For the people it actually impacts, it is an electoral issue because the fact is, if Trump gets in again, he's got another four years to revive it. And that could mean four more years of family separations, ramped up deportations and, yes, building that wall.
1: You seem slightly traumatised by your your trip out to the border
0: to look for bodies. Is it something you think you'd do again? Um, yeah, it, it is, because I think that even though that story sort of has been covered by a number of different organizations, I, I think that more people need to know really what's happening down there. I mean, it's it's horrifying. You know, a, a lot of these bodies, when they're found, or the skeletal remains that are found, you know, Ho- one of Jose's jobs, it sounds really awful, but one of his jobs is to look in the pockets of... The migrants who have lost their lives. So, like, if there's a set of skeletal remains nearby, you might find some ID. When we were there, we found this body that was about a, probably had a, been dead for about a week, so it was still kind of this, just a bloated corpse. And Jose put on some rubber gloves and kind of went looking in the pockets of this um, man's trousers and found some ID. But what I did as part of my story was jose and his team had posted this id from a body they'd found a week a week before on social media and they'd actually tracked down the family and he put me in touch with them so i was able to build a a, quite a detailed um sort of picture of what this migrant's life was like and you know it it's far from the image that trump paints of these rapists and murderers coming over the border this was a 20-something-year-old soccer fan who just lived in poverty in um, Honduras and just wanted a better life. And and his his cousin was telling me on the phone through a translator that he just wanted to take the risk and, and do this so he could send money back to his family. Now, you may not agree with his methods or why, you know, the fact that he did it illegally or all the rest of it. That's fine. But, you know, just to kind of, throw accusations about all these people being murderers and rapists is just is frankly just untrue respect
1: to Jose certainly for, for doing that kind of work um, you did say soccer instead of football there I just had to pick you up on that <laughs> I one. don't even like either <laughs> all right uh, we're
0: back um, on Thursday for the final episode we are I'll talk to you then we'll talk to you then Battleground is presented by me Alex Hannaford our producer and sound engineer is Peter Sayer. Our theme music is Three Girls Sitting Across the Bar by Hidden Twin. Special thanks once again to Jose Hiniz for speaking to us. Battleground is a DMT Media production for Audioboom.